Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. We are hunters, anglers, riders, and sometimes chefs. Our passion for the outdoor lifestyle motivated the foundation of Harvesting Nature, which serves as a media outlet built to inspire and educate the outdoor expert, and novice alike. Our podcast focuses on the technical side of cooking wild fish and game while also incorporating adventures and lessons learned from our pursuit of wild meat. Join us on our journey of harvesting nature. Hey guys, welcome to the uh, Harvesting Nature Wild Fish and Game podcast. Uh, we're happy to have you join us for the new episode tonight. And uh, we've got some big news going out to everybody today. Uh, we now are changing up our podcast schedule. We were every other week or the first and the 15th of the month, and we're changing our format. And now uh, we're going to be doing weekly releases. So every Wednesday, look for a release of, of the podcast. And then every other week, we're going to have some special guests on here to talk about hunting, fishing, cooking, eating, wild fishing games. So um, on this episode, got uh, one of our good friends, Justin Lee, here. So I'll hey, let Justin lot. introduce himself. Hello, everybody. Yeah, this is uh, Justin Lee. Um, over, I live in Hawaii, and uh, luckily enough, we're still able to go and collect uh, a couple of meals from the wild, whether it be from the ocean uh, or running around on hoofs. So, super stoked to be here, and uh, can't wait to talk stories with these guys. And we got Dustin and Colin too. Yeah, I don't know who is going next. Uh, <laughs> hey, this is Colin again. Uh, honored, privileged guest. But uh, happy to be here and talk to you, Justin. Hey, guys. It's Dustin. I'm looking forward to talking about spearfishing today. <laughs> Love it. So I'm definitely excited to talk about spearfishing, but also to hunting, but more importantly, just cooking some food, too, because I know you do a lot of that, and that's one of your main motivators behind uh, both spearfishing and hunting. Mm -hmm. how, did you, how did you get into both, both hunting and spearfishing? What was something that you kind of drew you into it you know lucky enough my dad you know that was just something that was brought up to us um at a young age 
is that we just followed him into the woods and into the ocean. And uh, he did that with his grandfather or his dad and his dad before him. And it kind of just been passed on through generations. Um, you know, I've been lucky enough to, you know, a lot of my friends are just getting into archery hunting now. And, you know, I think the first bow I owned, I was, I had a recurve bow, Fred Bear recurve bow at like five years old. Um, and then the spearfishing side of it, uh, you know, was, was the same time being introduced at the same time. And it's just that appreciation for being outside, you know, and that's what's, what's really awesome. Um, but being able to, you know, have a, a guiding light, I guess, as, as someone that you respect as a little kid and, and even into adulthood as your dad um, really, really sparked the interest and uh, just continued um, this love affair I have with being outside and, and chasing my own food, whether it's uh, holding my breath or uh, covered in camouflage um, with a bow and toe. It's, it really, really has, I hate the way it, it to say it, but it kind of has defined who I am, you know, and it, it, there's so many situations in life where if it wasn't for archery or if it wasn't for spearfishing, um, I probably wouldn't be married. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you know, I tell people all the time, like uh, with spearfishing, they're like, oh, you know, what's a secret or, or how do you, how do you go into it? I was like, I mean, with spearfishing, especially is you got to treat the, the fish that you're trying to spear, like the pretty girl at the bar. You know, you don't stare at them, <laughs> you know, but you're going to freak them out. And uh, Man, I've been doing this all wrong, all wrong, <laughs> dude. See, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, you know, and that, that being said is like, you know, the, you know, being able to, to kind of watch, not, I'm not relating my wife to the fish that I hunt in the ocean. <laughs> it's important but, uh, to point that out. <laughs> exactly. Um, but you know, it's, it's just like everything else It's kind of reading situations and uh, being aware of your, of your surroundings um, in so many things, you know, especially with archery hunting, you know, picking your path through the thick stuff that you're going to walk in to make sure that you're, you're the quietest or picking your hiding spot along the reef um, to help ensure that fish uh, won't see your shadows that you're going to be casting. Um, or, you know, I was a firefighter for eight years, you know, before you walk into a building on fire, you know, make sure that it's not creaking in, in certain places or that your situation awareness before you step in um, is there. And it's, it's kind of skills that started from the very get go from, you know, looking for octopus on the reef um, to trying to spear pigs uh, or trying to shoot pigs with my bow. And, uh, you know, I just got to thank my dad and, um, you know, for allowing me to not just follow him out there, but uh, to really let me define myself out there. That's awesome. I think it's really, uh, you. I think you hit the, the nail on the head in your, your last comment there with, as a parent now looking back, and I'm, I'm trying more and more to get my daughter into the sport. She's seven now. And so she's, she's getting more and more interested day by day. And she understands, you know, the connection with the food and hunting and food and fishing but something for me is taking uh, the patience to step back and be like, it's not always about me setting out in the field. If she's mm -hmm. with me, it's about sort of making sure as much as is in my control that it's an experience for her to learn and grow from while also, you know, not losing the patience that'll, that'll put it in a situation where I could turn her off to it. Yeah. And I think, I think it's valuable 
forethought and afterthought as parents. And, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that you had that relationship with your dad. Cause that's, that's key. I had the same with my grandfather who introduced me to both hunting and fishing. And, mm-hmm. and I think a majority of people can say the same, uh, that are outdoorsmen and women today. So, yeah. And that's, that's what I'm really, you know, I'm making it fun. You know, my dad was, as you know, he was my high school teacher too. Um, but you know, he made it always a blast to be outside, you know, whether it was scaling fish or, um, you know, just, just making it really, really enjoyable to be out there. And, um, you know, and when you're little, you know, you just want to try and improve, impress and, and prove yourself to your dad. Right. And you just want to be that, that shadow and be like, be that proud little beacon in front of him. And, mm-hmm. you know, so you had that plus my dad being able to, to make it always fun. And, um, and hopefully, you know, with my daughter and my son that I have now, hopefully I can kind of instill the same thing, you know, as, as selfish as it sounds, because I kind of want them to have the same kind of upbringing that I did, you know, because I had a blast. And, uh, um, you know, and it, it obviously, my parents raised me correct that I got to attract a beautiful bride as in my wife, and I got a beautiful family. And so I kind of want to hopefully instill the same values that my dad taught me in being outside um, to my to my kids. And, uh, but I think the biggest thing was, is making it fun. Like that's what my dad really, really did is he made it a lot of fun. And, um, and he gave me a lot of lollipops, which was really key. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'll have to try that trick. <laughs> <laughs> Scale the fish. Here's a lollipop. Yay. <laughs> so, I can, did you guys live in, in Hawaii for the majority of your childhood? I know we were talking a little bit about Colorado earlier. Um, so, uh, yeah, we were born out here and I lived out here till about five years old. And then my dad, um, he got into his grad program up at Colorado state university. So we moved, um, to Fort Collins, Colorado. And, uh, my dad had the coolest job with the division of wildlife up there. And, uh, he was to do the, the monitoring, monitoring of the lakes and reservoirs up in the Granby reservoir area. And his master's thesis was on the mortality rate of, um, hook and release lake trout in Granby reservoir. So we hooked, I think my dad or my dad hooked in his two year master's program, something like 2,300 lake trout um in that two years and and he used to take data of it and so we spent a lot of time in colorado on granby reservoir um and you know with my dad it was it was you could hook fish any means possible so we used to use live bait kokanee salmon and we'd catch you know 30 35 40 pound lake trout and he put these huge tracking collars on them back then um when we were little and so when we lived in fort collins that was that was the coolest thing is because we'd go hiking and go hunting for elk and mule deer, you know, just following in my dad's footsteps up there. And then, you know, um, when my dad finished up his schooling and my mom finished up her nursing school, the plan was always to come back to Hawaii. Um, and I think my mom and my dad uh, kind of wanted us to be close to family and such. So we moved back home. But yeah, we lived in Fort Collins for five years. Um, and Colorado, like if I had to live somewhere else other than Hawaii, it would be Colorado for sure. Like I just, I loved Fort Collins. And now each year that's, I've got a really good friend that uh, has some property out in Southern Colorado that we get to hunt elk and mule deer um, the last couple of years at. And, um, you know, every time I get a chance to go back to, to Colorado, it's, it's usually a lot of fun. And, 
it's just a really, really pretty place. And um, so lived in Fort Collins for five years, but spent probably half of that time up in Granby Reservoir and then moved back home um, right before I entered the sixth grade. And then went to school in Seattle um, at the University of Washington. Well, I was just going to say my uh, cousin lives in Fort Collins. So I've gone hunting um, hunting with him there mm-hmm. twice now. Um, moved up to, I think the unit is 219. Um yeah where eagle's nest is uh oh, okay. it's like just north of fort collins so yeah. we've gone up there for a mule deer a couple times yeah. yeah so i mean you're right it's a gorgeous area i mean that place is amazing uh, just yeah, being that, out there. that's the thing like we and then when i was in um what is that i think probably 20 2006 7 and 8 my buddies and i were like you know what let's go back to colorado let's do this over the counter um, elk hunts and stuff and uh, it was right after they had really bad chronic waste disease so you had to put in a draw for deer and unfortunately we never drew a deer tag um, but we'd go up there for elk thinking that we got this and we'd spend two weeks up there and we wouldn't see our first elk until the 11th day <laughs> and it'd be a fleeting <laughs> running away um, <laughs> but uh you know but walking around up in the breckenridge area you know hunting around twin and stuff like that um all the way down to like moscow pass uh hunting around the national parks by the sand dune national park and rocky mountain national park and stuff like that it was that place is gorgeous it really 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 is the good thing about hunting up there in fort collins though is uh it's it's relatively inexpensive for out-of-state people to just go right over to wyoming and hunt too so you can uh-huh. continue your hunt on after that yeah, yeah i mean it's what not even an hour away the border mm-hmm yeah, this, this last trip, I uh, shot an elk, um, or I didn't shoot an elk, a, a friend of mine. I wounded an elk, unfortunately, and couldn't find it. But my buddy got an yeah. elk, and he gave me a bunch of meat. And my family was in uh, in Las Vegas at the time, and I was like, you know what? I'll just drive over there. That was a Ooh. long drive. And there was a really bad snowstorm, so I actually had to go north of Fort Collins um, and went into Wyoming a little bit and then came back down and then dropped back down the other side of the Rockies. But it was, that was like, that was a long, long, long drive by myself. And that, that stretch West across Wyoming is, that's a long drive. I've done it from San Diego up through Vegas and Nevada, Utah, up over across to the Eastern side of, of Wyoming. And mm. Yeah that drive across Wyoming is it's pretty rough. You get, you get done counting antelope quick. You're like, all right, <laughs> yeah. 200, all right, exactly. 250. <laughs> exactly. I did the, uh, I did the northbound transit through Wyoming on my, uh, my cross country drive from Connecticut to Seattle. So my first duty station was in Seattle and, uh, we drove to Fort Collins then up through Wyoming and Montana and Idaho over to Seattle. And it was pretty nice, but it was the middle of summer too. So, I mean, it's just gorgeous you know, high desert area, but glad we didn't have any snow then. Yeah. I know when I was driving, I was like, I got a buddy that lives in Cody, Wyoming. And I was like, oh, oh shit, yeah. maybe I'll just go stop in Cody. And I'm driving and I was like, Hawaii, you know, everything's just a drive away. I looked at Cody. I'm like, yeah, that's going to be a 10 hour one way <laughs> drive. Up there. Like, I'm sorry, buddy. I ain't going up that way. He's all like, I thought you were crazy when you said you were going to come say hi. He's like, nobody <laughs> comes to Cody to come say hi. <laughs> The winds too on the top of that mountains that come across. Yeah, windy. Well, crazy. I got blown around all over the place up there. Now I kind of understand, I guess, more the introduction of you and for hunting. How popular is hunting in Hawaii? It's huge. It's 
Um, the biggest uh, hunting out here is, is definitely pigs and uh, pigs and dogs. Like that's, I mean, I want to say, especially in the small town that I grew up in, like I grew up in a town called Honoka'a and there's probably 3,500 people and that's half of the people counting their dogs as humans on the census, I swear. Um, <laughs> but, you know, every every other house has three or four hunting dogs in the back. And, um, you know, so, I mean, my buddy Wayne, we call him Big Game Wayne, and I would take him against the field any day in a in a, any kind of hunting industry. But it he he kind of supplements his uh, supplements his income with the sausages that he makes with the pigs and stuff that that he catches. But in one year, and he works a full time job. In one year, he shot two hundred and ninety six pigs. That's insane. In one year, and that's I mean, it's in it. It like I tell him all the time, like. So, like, at the end of the day, if you haven't killed something, it's like the gecko in your room. Like, that that poor gecko is going to get it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, he makes sausages with it. I mean, and he's still so thorough. And, I mean, you can only imagine after cleaning that many pigs and uh, that many animals how quick he can debone an animal um, and how efficient it is. And uh, but Lots of practice. <laughs> lots. And his dad's a butcher. <laughs> And uh, uh, so no, he even had it for when he was little. Um, but, you know, so growing up out here, like pig hunting was just something everybody did. And everybody thought pig hunting was cool. You know, something with big blades, bro. We call them chops, bro. I gotta get chops. Um, <laughs> you know, so if you got a big pig with, with big hooks on them and stuff like that, like, I mean, that was a prize. And everybody in, in our country school knew it. Um, and so pig hunting is huge out here in Hawaii, um, you know, and it's, it's something that's so culturally instilled in us. It's huge. Um, but a big part of, uh, a, a big step, I guess, um, that lessens the crowd is archery hunting. Um, and that's, that's always what I've done. You know, I haven't shot too many, I think I can count on one hand the amount of animals I've shot with a rifle. Um, but with archery, you know, that's just how I was brought up. My dad isn't. Yeah, there you go, Dust. That one's got some it's got some blades on it for sure. Yeah, that's my, my prize. Super board. And uh, what's that? So archery hunting has just been something that, you know, I always did um, because my dad did it and my grandfather did it. My great grandfather did it, you know, back in chasing sheep around here and pigs around here with recurves and uh, homemade arrows. Um, but, you know, so once you start picking up a bow and arrow, all of a sudden the crowds get smaller, of course. Um, yeah. And, uh, but unfortunately for out here in Hawaii, um, a lot of the public land, because, uh, you know, the ungulates have all been brought in and they're not native, they get eradicated pretty heavily. Um, like Mauna Kea, which is a mountain over here um, that we have. And, you know, it's almost 14,000 foot mountain and it's, it's huge. The area is huge. The, the public game, um, area that you can hunt on it when my dad was a kid had something like 40,000 head of sheep on it and uh, there's the palila bird which is a native Hawaiian bird that's an endangered species and they're only found on the slopes of Mauna Kea and in an effort to protect the palila bird they eradicated almost every sheep on the mountain you know and that's so oh, wow. with helicopters and machine guns so it's not even like they were because the sheep like degrading the the vegetation or food source exactly and so the palila bird they only feed on this one tree called the mamane tree seed 
and um and that Momane, I guess, just grew up on that side and they never kind of ventured offside of there. But the sad thing is, you know, they did this in the the mid seventies, so forty years now. And the Palila bird numbers haven't increased at all. Um, but the amount of money that they've spent putting fences up and to control the sheep herd, now that they estimate the amount of sheep on top of the mountain at less than sixty sheep. You know, oh, wow. um, wow. and so it's like fed all over the place, all the public hunting land, because unlike, you know, the key deer that we were talking about earlier, that we don't know if they're natural or not, but they're going to stay a native animal until, you know, proven otherwise. The sheep, mm -hmm. pigs, goats out here, even the deer on Maui and uh, the neighbor islands, that they're a fact that they're, they were brought in, you know, so there's no protection for them. You know, so the outdoorsmen out here, you know, you're only comprised to a couple of small spots that you're able to hunt now. Um, you know, and we we are pretty lucky in the ways that, you know, our hunting, you know, a bad day of sheep hunting out here, you're still going to see 30 or 40 sheep where a bad day of elk hunting is six or, or bad hunt is six or seven days of hiking and not seeing a single elk. You know, so we're still able to see game. It's just not in the numbers that it once was. And um, it's just the the hunting opportunity has uh, taken a huge toll in the last probably 10 or 15 years, unfortunately, out here. But do you, uh, think, that, do you think that's affecting kind of hunter retention and sort of strengthening the voice of, of outdoors men and women in, in Hawaii? Oh, huge, huge. I mean... It's, the pig hunting will always be here, I believe, because um, there's no way that you can eradicate pigs. Um, they just live everywhere. You know, they're like you're, they just they breed too fast. Yeah, I mean, you can't. You have to control their numbers, of course. But I mean, you could put a fence. You could take a hundred acres, fence it off with hog wire to the ground, and say, "Go kill every pig in there." And unless you did it t ten hours a day for two years, I don't think you could take them all out of there. Um, you know, and so we've got a lot of thick forest that the pigs will always be here. So the dog hunting will always be a thing and pig hunting will always be a thing. Um, where it gets really hard is everything outside of that, um, you know, with the goats and sheep. Uh, so the archery hunters get a real bad, um, you know, as far as uh, a real bad go at it because there just isn't too many archery hunting areas left. Unless you've got private lands or you have friends that have some land um, that allow you to go out there it's, it's come really, really tough. Um, you know, there's still a couple of really good little honey holes that you can hunt, um, uh, public land out here. Um, but those are, are quickly evaporating, unfortunately. Um, you know, especially on the big Island. And then you've got the Island of Lanai, I think, which is really awesome. They got a state hunt that the, they do every year for archery hunting or for axis deer, um, and, and mouflon, which is really great. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of our only, um, hold strong is as far as archery hunting and uh, public land hunting is Lanai um, because Maui, a majority of that island is all private land. Molokai, the majority of it is all, you know, and on the big island, everybody's fencing it up. But uh, Lanai is, is still holding strong and the community thrives on it. You know, there's, it's a small, small island and um, the state hunt, a lot of people go and I know friends of mine that live on Lanai they'll actually for the week of the hunters that come in they'll all live with grandma for that week and rest rent out their three homes you know at yeah 200 wow. bucks, 
200 bucks a room for a weekend, you know, basically make their mortgage in one hunting season. And, um, you know, so that, that Island is still doing well. I wish, I wish all the other islands would kind of follow suit and, uh, and open something up like that. Um, it'd be, it'd be huge, I think. Um, because like you said, the voice of the, the hunting out here, if you're not a pig hunter is, is very, very muddled. Can you, so you talk a lot about, and maybe I missed it about, uh, bow hunting for the hogs out there. Mm-hmm. Can you rifle hunt too? Or yeah. is Hawaii like a, okay. I don't know if it was like a restricted area for rifles or something like that. Just cause it's, I mean, I know at least Oahu is pretty dense, but yeah. Um, I don't know about the other islands. No, the big island is pretty rural and you're able to hunt with rifle. Okay. On it. And so like, Okay. 99% of the pigs on this island probably are shot with a either a 30-30 open sight or a 44 mag <laughs> open sight. Like just the, just the nice. gun, no scope. Like my buddy Wayne, I mean, he shoots with his, he's got a 308 that he go, takes hunting for for sheep because you can go hunt sheep in certain rifle areas. But everything is open sight. Yeah. He's shooting shit. Old like, wild game Wayne. Yeah. Yeah. Like, 150 yards going, open sight. Going to the bush with a revolver and a knife. Yeah. <laughs> <You just> said, <laughs> like, so let me ask you this about bow hunting hogs because mm-hmm. I'm a bowman by trade. I, I love shooting bow. I mean, I, I shoot iguanas with bow. I, I try to, the smaller, the yeah. the farther away, I love my bow, right? Is that what it's called? I've switched to <laughs> using rifle for hog because yeah. I've had a few that they're so hard to track, at least for me. Have you ever had that issue? I mean, I imagine when I think of Hawaii, I think of lush green vegetation everywhere. Are they leaving any blood trail? I mean, they, they don't bleed that well. Their skin's too tight. Yeah. They, it depends on, um, you know, the pig that you shoot, especially if you shoot a big sow that has a lot of fat, you're looking at zero blood trail. Um, and even a big boar because they got that shield, like they just close up so quickly. Um, you know, with, with the archery equipment, you try and like, I've had people shoot, boars with uh rages and have the the blades break off and on the other side it looks like it's shooting with a field tip so of course you got no blood on that side um but uh you know if you that's i tell people all the time when you're hunting pigs i was like as low and as close to that front shoulder as you can because uh, you know you got that shield in the right and that armpit is if you can hit them low then you'll get a decent blood trail but yeah like you said majority of the time you're following their track in the mud more than you're following a blood trail. Um, and it makes sense. I've had, it, I've had scary conditions where you know, you're following up and all of a sudden you hear them and the whole grass stands in front of you. And you're like, ah, you know? um, <laughs> but yeah, like that's the biggest thing out here too. Yeah. You don't get much of a blood trail. Um, and even with our sheep out here, because they're, they're wool. So basically they have a sponge outside of them so if you don't shoot them low um you're not going to have a blood trail either and uh but you know hawaii we've got what is it i think almost every one of the world's ecosystems we've got deserts to rainforests to to everything like that and so when you're hunting sheep in these big pasture areas i tell people all the time it's like you can't shoot and sit down like you got to shoot and run to your highest point and watch your sheep because they'll lie down in the middle of the pasture and you won't have any blood and you'll walk right past them. Um, yeah. you know, and so it's not, and then when you go hunt deer, it's the exact opposite. You know, you shoot a deer, you don't even move for like 45 minutes. You're like, especially with active deer, you know, because, you know, and then you're going to pick up their blood trail. But 
Yeah, pigs and sheep, horrible, horrible blood trail. Goats, amazing blood trail. And they, this sounds really Jeffrey Dahmerish, but they scream <laughs> and they freaking are hurt. So you, you know where your Billy is. And you're, <laughs> standing in the middle of a lava field, he'd be like, I got you, boo. I got, I got to know where you're at. You know, and they, they bleed. They bleed really, really well. So they are the the confidence boosters out here for sure. If you want, if you're having a bad couple of days and you lose a couple of pigs, they're like, "Shit, I gotta go shoot me a goat, shoot you a goat." And you <laughs> Jordan again. So, I know. I like. I prefer uh, the Montec G5 broadheads. But do you have a, a favorite broadhead for shooting hog? For shooting hog, um, I just started shooting. They're a little expensive, um, but uh, I shot. I shoot that Iron Will. Um, that iron wheel broadhead from a guy from Colorado. I mean, it shoots really, really well. And I shot uh, my mule deer with it last year and it just blew through the front shoulder. It was pretty amazing, but they're expensive. Um, but through and true, the, the best, the most, uh, um, killing broadhead that I've ever used for pigs, Muzzy 225, hundred grain, the old school three grain, three blade, hundred grain Muzzy. I've killed more pigs with that, that broadhead than, than anything else just be and they're they're relatively inexpensive and they don't break you know um and that's the biggest thing like i like i said i've taken friends out here that have you know tripans and go shoot a pig with a tripan and the pig eats it and just runs away and you don't even follow a blood trail and they go into a big gulp and i'll be like you follow the blood trail now i'm gonna stay out here <laughs> where the pasture <laughs> is open you can go crawl into that tunnel following your pig i told you not to shoot a mechanical um but uh you know the the montauk's a good head i think just anything that is a cut on contact um especially for the pigs is is a great broadhead so what's your what's your go-to species to hunt what's your your favorite in hawaii in hawaii i mean you grow up just idolizing a big ram and uh so i think i get probably most excited when i see big sheep um, just because, you know, big mature ram with a huge horns that are just majestic looking and hearing them fight and everything like that. Um, you know, so I love the opportunity to go look for, you know, big feral sheep or mouflon sheep. Um, but then in the same sentence, I love axis deer hunting. Unfortunately, I don't live on the same island. Um, and I was supposed to go on uh, a couple of axis deer hunts um, this month and uh, next month. But uh, if they don't lift the, the travel ban in between islands, I'm going to have to swim over there pretty soon. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Axis deer, I mean, the, the beautiful thing about Axis deer is, you know, compared to, you know, unfortunately, guys that live in the mainland where they've just got a short deer season and you try and fill it in with turkey and you fill it in with, um, you know, springtime hunting, you know, in an Axis deer hunt, it's not uncommon to get, six or seven stocks a day where, you know, you're getting in close and these deer are all on cocaine. I swear they're just all wide eyed ear, just freaked out thinking you're a tiger coming through the bushes. And so the, the amount of experience that you get out of just a couple of days of access to your hunting spot and stock is just unbelievable. And then the table fare for access deer. I mean, I don't think you can get any better. So you get, you get the foe of it being a really challenging, smart um, deer. They're beautiful to look at. Their antlers are, can be really, really impressive. 
And then at the end of the day, you bring home some back straps or even just anything and make ground beef with or ground deer with it. And they're delicious. Um, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't think I've had ground hamburger, like beef burger, probably other than at a restaurant where I'll grab a burger now and then at my home in probably two years, two and a half years. I've always had either Axis deer or elk burger in my lasagna and sandwiches and stuff like that at home. Um, it's the, the only way to go. Yeah. But yeah, but there's, there is one animal that I think is the coolest thing in the hunt and I is big mule deer. I think mule deer are just some of the coolest, most beautiful things in the world. And uh, yeah, mule deer are a lot. And they're just a lot of fun to hunt. Where's the, where do you normally head out to hunt mule deer at? Um, to Colorado. So I've gotten a, my first mule deer I shot was in New Mexico. Um, at a place called Wedding Cake. It was a friend's place. And um, got there and spot and stalked him. And, and it was after a monster. And this monster, I swear, had a protective bubble around him. And I just couldn't get an arrow in him. And I put the big buck to sleep. And then this other buck came up. And it was a management buck at the place that I was hunting. And uh, I shot him at 40 yards. Perfect. Drilled him. He ran a little bit and died. I was stoked. And I was like, yeah, I know the big one still. They say, how close I can get to the big one. Of course, I crawl into like less than five yards of this big one. I can just see his antler tip sticking out of this dust hole that he was sitting there. And I was all like, are you kidding me? And um, and I went, and he stood up. He bounced 10 feet away, stopped, turned broadside, and looked at me for like, I don't know, two minutes. at Not even 10 yards away. I'm like. Of course, of course. I don't have my bow in my hand. <laughs> like you need five of. I want to shoot you right now, and um, but that's when you when you know you're the top buck. You're like, <laughs> let me just see what's over there. Exactly. I'll decide if I want to run. <laughs> exactly, and uh, but so I got that, and then I've been going to uh, Southern Colorado uh, the last couple of years, and then last year I got invited on a hunt um, in Alberta, and we came across oh, cool. a giant that we called the dark horse and uh he was huge and we had him with um uh we had him close to we had him at one day at 29 yards um coming across and a stupid doe walked in front of him down the trail and walked straight to me and uh because they were so we'd seen him from the top of this and they were sitting inside of a canola field and there was him and two other bucks and uh, so we made a play on him, and we walked the rest of the canola field. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen a canola field. This local boy had never seen one. And the canola field, they're like chest-high weeds that are so thick. Mm-hmm. And then they make so much noise. It's like they all got rattlers on them from the canola beans. And so it's just so loud. And uh, so there was no way we could go into the canola to try and get on him. And he, we, so we paralleled him as he woke up and got out of his bed. And then he hit an old road between two, two fields. And we were in a wheat field and he was in a canola field. And he was walking straight up to us like this. And I was like, oh, my God, this is going to happen. And the small buck that he was with came out to the, to the road at 24 yards, eight on the road. And I was like, looked, at, looked in our way and just kept walking. I was like, holy shit, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And then all of a sudden I kind of peek up and the buck's antlers is like one step away from the road. So I'm ready to draw back. Um, 
And as I'm about to pull back, a doe comes in front of him, gets onto the road, turns, and walks straight to us. And at 18 oh. yards, she stops and stares at us like, I was like, oh, my God, she's gone. She bounced back. The other buck bounced back to her, and they both looked at us. And, I mean, this is like a 200-class typical mule deer. And they stared at us and gone. And it was just like, but it was so cool being that close to something like that. And, um, you know, and then we found him again two days later, and we had him at 30 yards laying down in some willows. And we laid down there for six hours only to have the wind shift on us in the last half an hour and they blow out and run away. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, oh, oh, oh my God. It's the worst. But, oh. uh, but it's just, you know, you know, and you, you, the hindsight is always twenty twenty. you know, you're always looking back and like, shit, I should have drawn back and stood up. I should have done this. I should have done that. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that's the beauty of archery hunting. You know, you see, you have that, you know, unless it all, cause you need to have everything come together. And then you have to step on dog poop and be really, really lucky, you know, and, <laughs> um, you know, or it's just the story. It's just about the one that got away. And, uh, but it is what it is, but let's see if you guys can, I don't know if you guys can see, it's a super blurry picture, but that's the uh, in Canada. Oh yeah. I can oh, see yeah. the top of it. Yeah. yeah. yeah oh, right. wow. It was, he was huge. And then so uh, he had time to take a picture. That's what you're telling me. Huh? Oh, he ran away. <laughs> I put my binoculars. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I got you. Yeah. It was so sad. That was, I mean, you just can't, I mean, you sit there and you're just like, yeah, that was probably one of the most amazing opportunities. And just being that close to a specimen like that is, is amazing in, in itself. Um, you know, and you just sit there and you're just like, you know, it's, the the killer inside you is just pissed off that you lost the opportunity and then the, the outdoorsman inside you is all like you got to see one good job <laughs> <laughs> yeah you ever uh, hunt like pronghorn in colorado never in colorado um i met a guy um that runs an outfitting company in uh, pie town new mexico and uh out here and he's all like man if you ever if you ever want to hunt elk or mule deer and stuff like that, just put in, he says, and I'll point you in the right direction. I've got a lot of private land out here that if you draw a tag in the area, he said, I so you can't have a guide or anything like that, but you can just point. And so I put in for elk and deer, mule deer and pronghorn. And I drew a pronghorn the first time I went in. And that was one of the coolest, coolest hunts ever. And I was the only guy in there in that area that, that drew. Um, and they were getting ready for elk season. So there was a couple of guys out there that were scouting out there already. And, um, so the guys at black mountain outfitter, one of the guys is like, yeah, I'll come spot for you. No worries. I was like, okay. And we found this thing. And I mean, we belly crawled. We found him at 10 o'clock in the morning or nine o'clock in the morning. This buck I shot, I shot him at 64 yards, horrible, horrible shot. Um, it drifted far left and I broke his back leg and then I finally killed him Ooh. at five thirty in the afternoon. And oh, man. if it wasn't for, um, a coyote, I probably would have never got him because I, when I was following him, he, he just, you know, he was a big old buck. And as soon as he got injured, he would lie, you know, with the wind at his back looking away from you and, 
you know, you've seen antelope country. There's nothing to hide behind. You know, you're trying to belly yeah. crawl and not get bit by freaking Mojave rattlesnakes or whatever they're called. And uh, so, but he would just never let me get close and never let me get close. And I remember thinking, I'm just going to outwalk him. I was all like, I got water. I cut six hours before it's dark. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to have to go to water or he's going to freaking be completely tired or I'll push him into an area where I can get close. And so I just got up and started walking towards him. And the, uh, the guy sitting on the top, he's like, what's your plan? I was like, bro, I'm just going to walk him out. He's all like, you're going to outwalk a pronghorn. I was like, it's going to take me six hours. He's <laughs> One leg is broken. He can't even freaking put any weight on it. It's completely broken. I was all like, he's going to get tired. And he's all like, good luck. <laughs> and so I started walking after him. And he took off. Like, he wasn't even hurt. And I was like, do you guys still see him? They're like, yeah, he's probably about a mile in front of you. I was like, okay. So I just kept walking and walking in my direction. Man. And every time he would get scared, he wouldn't run as far. And he wouldn't run as far. And then there was one time I was like 200 yards away and he ran into this little depression and it was maybe an eight or nine foot depression and he disappeared. And I was like, Oh, and so I sprinted and I get to the top of this depression and I look down and in the bottom, I was like, Oh shit. He joined up with a, another herd of antelope. And I looked with my binoculars and it was a coyote and there's a coyote lying down, staring at my pronghorn. And I was like, Hmm. So I called the guys I was like, man, there's a coyote on him. They're like, he's going to eat your buck. I was like, no. He's like, yeah. And the the pronghorn started to work up this draw and disappeared. And then I watched it. And then the, the coyote took off the pronghorn like a dog chasing after a pig. And I was like, holy shit, he's going to spin him. And so I ran across the ridge line. And I get to the top and I look at the bottom of this. And sure enough, the coyote is spinning my pronghorn. And the pronghorn is sitting there fighting him. I have a video of it because in the middle, I was like, what the hell? I grabbed my camera, videoed it for like 10 seconds. And I was like, man, I got to I gotta shoot this thing. And then oh, so wow. after watching him spin it, I ran down there, tried to shoot him. The And he broke away from the coyote and they ran to the top of the ridge side. They had no idea I was there. I come up to the top and the coyote is sitting in front of the pronghorn, staring at the pronghorn. And the pronghorn is just looking at him. And you can see the pronghorn is breathing pretty heavy. And I got up to 50 yards and then I took my time and then I soaked him and, uh, and got my pronghorn. And he was a decent sized pronghorn. I'll try and see if I can send a picture. Oh yeah. That's right, a nice yeah. spread. But he ended up going 82 and a third, 82 and one eighth. That's pretty good. Yeah. I was freaking, I was so stoked, but I don't know if it's going to come in blurry, but can you see the coyote chasing the pronghorn? Oh yeah. oh yeah. Yeah, I mean he's like thrashing him around a little bit too. Man, he's just yeah, and on that leg, he's not doing well. No, and yeah. So, and that was and that was the first pronghorn hunt I ever had. And I was like, bro, this is crazy. And the guys are like, it doesn't happen like that, just to let you know. <laughs> you know. It was it was I mean, I would love to go and hunt pronghorn again. I had and the guy's all like, man, this is going to be the worst meat you ever had in your whole life. He's like, that prong no already doesn't taste very good. And then you had him running around crazy. And uh, he actually, he tasted really good. Brought him home. Um, I mean, we wrapped it in bacon, but uh, brought him home. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> and he tasted, he tasted awesome. I, I really, really enjoyed the, the pronghorn. And hopefully I get to go chase him again because uh, I had a blast. I mean, they're, they're such cool animals too. 
It's uh, it's one of my favorite animals to hunt. Like yeah. I, I've gone uh, two years with a, a five year split between them, uh, or no, uh, three year split between them. But it, it's they're they're so cool, and the history they have in the U.S. is just so so long and so rich. Mm-hmm. Um, they're amazing animals too, like resilient. It, it's the challenge of hunting them makes it worth every minute. Yeah. And, that's, and uh, probably one of my favorite game meets too. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Like, uh, I don't know if you guys listen to that podcast, uh, like American Serengeti. It was like one of um, Steve Rinella's first, uh, um, what's that podcast he did? And it was, uh, they talked about the history of the Plains games and, and all of that and, and how pronghorn played a big part of, uh, you know, that whole moving westward. And like you said, the history of the pronghorn and uh, and what a cool animal they are that they shed their horn, you know, their sheath around there and they regrow it like a toenail every year. is pretty cool. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, the... it's a Dan Flores book um, uh, who interesting, he wrote American Serengeti who interesting enough wrote uh, Coyote America. Yep. Um, when you're talking about the coyote, uh, that's one of the best books, like ecology books that I've ever read. Really? Um, but American Serengeti, I'll, I'll have to check that one out for sure. It's it's a great book. I mean, yeah. it's it's with that guy Dan, and he talks about it and uh, the yeah. history of it all and everything like that. It's it's really really cool. I just looked that up. I didn't know it off the top of my head. Just so you know, <laughs> yeah. don't like Colin. It's all good. <laughs> you ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. So talking about favorites, what's your your favorite game meat to cook and like your recipes? You don't have to give away any family secrets, but <laughs> there's no family secrets, man. It's I love axis deer, like, and you know I've had it in every way, shape, and form. But the best is, you know, my buddies and I will go camping, and um, you know, there's just nothing better than a little Montreal steak sauce and an open fire. You know, and, uh, you know, you cook it medium rare and you slice it and you eat it up. Um, you know, friends of mine will, will go camp on the beach and hunt deer and, and fish and stuff like that and bring, you know, someone. That's the first thing you do is you shoot the first deer that comes in front of you. So you got meat uh, in camp and, um, you know, that backstrap um, is the first thing they cut off. And, and now, like I said, simple Montreal steak sauce, steak seasoning throw it on the grill it's good to go um but now with uh you know i'm a big fan of the, the traeger and i don't think you can cook anything well, yeah. on that thing and uh um, nope. <laughs> it, it makes you feel like you're the best cook in the world because you don't burn anything you don't charcoal anything and um but you get some good flavors out of it and there's a, a coffee rub that i really like that's got some spice to it um that i'll, I'll rub on top of a, a big um backstrap of a buck and just throw it on there and cook it to the center is at about 105 degrees pull it off let it rest for a little bit and thinly slice it and 
you can't go wrong with access deer, man. I, the only thing you can do wrong is overcook it. And you don't do that if you put a thermometer inside of it, but, uh, yeah. Like, what, what, uh, what kind of spices in the coffee rub? I know it's got some garlic. It's got some chili in there. Um, okay. That's what I was going to ask some chili. Cause I've heard, I've had that a few times. It's like the coffee yeah. and chili mixture, but it's, is it the, is that the Traeger one? Yeah, the, the Traeger, Traeger mix? Yeah, the Traeger. Oh, yeah, okay. All right. All right. It's just a coffee rub inside there. Um, you know, but there's, you know, the, the craziest thing is like you go to all of these parties, like people's first birthday parties out here or their wedding. And uh, a lot of um, party favors are just bags of salt. Um, and it's their own salt <laughs> mixture and stuff like that. And man, I went to, I don't even know whose wedding this was that I went to. And they gave across like this bag and I remember tasting it. I was like, Oh, this thing is really good. And so I went back and of course grabbed like four or five of these bags and, uh, <laughs> or just walked to everybody's table as they were dancing and be like, Oh, they left it. Shucks. Cause it's coming home with me. But it, it's called Bummer. Ohana Salt. And I don't even know who Ohana Salts is or what. And Ohana just means family. And so, but I don't know what mixture it is, but it is so good. And, um, you know, so, and there's like, there's a couple of different color salts in it. There's a black salt, which I know is like a salt from uh, Molokai that they'll take the salt and they'll, they'll burn it um, or they'll cook it on top of uh, uh, Kiave smoke. So it gets real black smoke. And so the salt will get that smoky flavor to it. Um, and then they mix it with regular rock salt. And, um, and then they had a whole bunch of other spices inside of it, but it was to this day, I have, I mean, I gotta. I wish, I wish I knew whose wedding it came from, so I could ask them. But like, hey, where the heck did you guys get this salt from? But, uh, but yeah, I mean, with access deer, you can't go wrong. Elk. I mean, I've had elk a million and one different ways, and you really can't go wrong with elk. Mule deer. That one was kind of hit or miss. Like, uh, I had uh, some mule deer. The one from New Mexico that I was eating a lot of sage. That one was. That one was. That one was. Mm. That one was different. And then the, the desert, <laughs> desert mule deer that my buddy shot um, with me in uh, in Wickenburg, Arizona, that one was gnarly. Like we made beef jerky. We made jerky with it, and it still was super gamey. Um, oh, wow. But uh, but you, you know what I find with the uh, the ones that, especially the ones sage, so antelope, and you get the mule deer that feed off the sage, do uh, uh, like citrus, citrus uh, stuff with it. Uh, it kind of it pairs really well with the meat, and you don't really mask it. It just like accentuates the flavor. And uh, to uh-huh. me, that's that's probably the best flavor combination for those the those ones that eat the sage. Gotcha, citrus. Okay, sweet. Yeah, and like the axis deer out here. I mean, because there's no fat on them. Like they're such a lean animal, um, and they eat a lot of mesquite beans, and they eat a lot of just really good eating grasses. I guess. There's like no gaminess to them, um, you know, and they just, they taste phenomenal. And like I said, you can do anything with them. I mean, we've, if, if there's anybody out there that is um, squeamish when it comes to, to gaminess animal, <laughs> axis deer is the answer. It's like, you know, it's got its own flavor, but it's not gamey. It's not, I mean, I've had steaks that I bought at restaurants that had way more gaminess to it than, uh, an axis deer interesting like that you guys being in florida they got them all over the place down there in those big farm and high fence areas but i know you can buy yeah. axis deer. like that is yeah 
I mean, if you're going to introduce someone to wild game, that's that's the baby step to take them. That's a hunt I want to go on because I've been dying to have one they, of those hides. They are. I would. I would use that like, real quick. Yeah. There, like you said, like this, that that hide, that spots that they have. I mean, they are just a beautiful, beautiful animal. Um, and yeah, and the fact that they taste great and are fun to hunt make them make them make me wish that I had them on the big island. I, I imagine too the experience of hunting them, the views and the scenery and all that. It uh adds to it definitely. Yeah, the cool thing is they they live from the ocean side all the way to the top of the mountains on uh, the islands that have them, um, you know, which makes them a headache for the ranchers and such. But like you said, the views, I mean, you can hunt, be hunting them basically in desert, hot, 100 degree, 100% humidity area, and then be hunting them, you know, um, in a rainforest. And uh, that's, that's the beauty of it is like you sit back, like you said, like, and you can, you know, it's it's so apples to oranges, you know, to like the Rockies in Colorado or um, the Olympias in, in Washington, um, you know, but and each has got its own unbelievable beauty. But yeah, like out here in Hawaii, the cool thing is you can shoot a shoot a buck and then 20 minutes later have it on ice and jumping in the water to go get your, your surf to go along with your turf for dinner. so that's a that's actually a perfect segue uh kind of want to talk a little spearfishing before we run out of time here at harvesting nature we're known to cook a variety of wild fish and game in a variety of ways probably one of my favorite methods is to cook in a smoker traeger grills has some of the best products out there their pellet grills aren't just grills they're smokers and ovens too Anything you can do in the oven in your house, you can do on the Traeger. You can make desserts. You can grill steaks. You can use cast iron pans and braise tough cuts. You can allow roasts and briskets to smoke all day until they're tender and delicious. You can even use it to make jerky. Their variety of pellets are also very impressive. The different flavors of wood allow you to pair with your meat or fish or vegetables and give it the most flavor that you can create. They even have varieties created specifically for your next wild fish or game meal. Do you do you find a commonality between hunting and fishing? Spear oh, fishing? Like archery hunting especially. It's it's huge. Um, you know, just like in archery hunting, you're always trying to play, you know, un- unlike um, archery hunting where you're trying to get the wind in your favor, you know, cur- high current areas, um, you know, is what you're kind of looking forward to, but it's, it's a lot like, you know, you're, you're moving slow. You're not trying to be aggressive movements. Um, but it's all trying to read the animals, um, behavior, you know, like you don't ever lift up your spear gun when the fish is in the open in front of you, you know, you have to, if they go behind a rock or something like that, and you can extend your arm and you can aim that way. But it's that same patience where that same going through the rocks as the same way that you would um, archery hunting. You know, if there's a ridge top like this, you're not going to go over the ridge top. You're going to go around the ridge. Um, so you're not skylined over. And it's the same thing with the boulders while you're hunting um, in the ocean. You're not going to go over the boulders. You're going to go through the boulders. Um, and you're going to be trying to be as quiet as possible. So you don't want your fins to drag on the reef. You don't want your elbow or your spear gun or you to bounce off the reef. You want to 
slither through the reef as, as quietly as possible. Um, and, you know, just like, uh, um, you know, on land, you know, you don't want to be that, that threatening object out there. Like, uh, you know, those guys in Africa that they're sitting out there and the baboons are the first things to come through. And so you've got to get the trust of the baboons before the animals will come <laughs> in. It's, it's the same thing with the, with the fish that you're trying to shoot is you got to get the trust of the smaller, not game fish. As soon as they get comfortable around you, then the bigger predatory fish will come in and investigate as well. Do you uh, use chum bags? Uh, yeah. So there's, there's, there's two different types of hunting that we do out here. Um, and I take the chum bag is like putting your feeder in front of uh, your tree stand while you're deer hunting. You know, you're just trying to attract them into, because you're in this vast ocean, right? Where you're, you can't see the bottom because in some places you're at 10,000 feet deep water. And to have the fish try and come through within a shooting distance of you is just like trying to have a, a deer in a, a cornfield to come and walk towards you. Uh, you do your homework and of course, and you set yourself up with the, tur the currents and just like you do your homework with deer, you try and set up your way with uh, their trails and such. But by chumming, you're just giving an added benefit for them to come your way. Um, you know, and you know, uh, with the chum, it's it's not a guarantee. Just like putting corn in front of your feeder, you still got to execute the shot and you still got to make a lot of movements and not scare away the fish. Uh, just like you got to make a lot of movements in your tree stand and not scare away um, the deer. But yeah, definitely chum. And so you, you bring in the added facts that sharks are going to come in. You bring in the added fact that, um, you know, you're trying to attract everything in the ocean. And uh, sometimes... They're not dinner fish. They're uh, you're his dinner fish, so you gotta <laughs> you gotta play defense a little bit. But um, but that's that's just the exciting part of it. So do you have a like a memorable a memorable a memorable? Ugh, I can't even talk. Your most memorable dive, one that that stands out, that's uh, um, a monumental one. You know, it's, this sounds like super super cheesy, and if you would have asked me this, like. 15 years ago, I probably would have said a different answer. Um, but uh, there's a fish that I shot that took me three months to shoot. And, um, you know, he's not the biggest fish I've ever seen in the world. He's not to 99% of the, the people out there in the world would look at that fish and be like, huh? But it's a moo, which is out here. And they're just a very, very smart fish. And they're, they're kind of patternable in a way that if you find them in a certain area, they're going to be always around in that area. And um, when I was in the fire station, I'd go and dive before work and sometimes after work. And uh, this is before kids. So <laughs> you had all the time in your world, but uh, that you could spend three months trying to shoot a fish. But uh, um, I spotted this fish and he was, he's a really large moo. Um, and, uh, they're just notorious for being really, really smart. And, uh, the first time I saw him, like, I was like, holy shit, I got to get him. And it took, you know, like, I think over that three months I've been diving 14 times for him and I would find his school and, uh, he would always be there, but he was always so smart that he would be on the other side or he'd be somewhere. And so I would follow him for, you know, an hour and a half, two hours, I would follow their school. And then eventually they would disappear. 
And uh, I kind of got the idea where if you saw him here, the best place that you're going to kill this fish is where there was a lot of terrain where you could hide. And, um, and on the day that I was like, yeah, today is the day that this homeboy is going to go down. And um, I spotted them in an area where I wasn't going to be able to get close to them. And so I pushed them to where I wanted them to go. And the way I pushed them is I would, so the school, there was probably 40 fish in the school. And I would push them and I would dive on either side of them, but I would never look at the school. So I would dive down, lie on the ground and face away from them. So they would get used to me, but they would move away and move away. And then they finally got to an area where there was a big crack. And it took, I think it was 11 dives, 10. I got them on the 11th dive, it was 10 dives. And on my 11th dive, we were in the area where I could get, and there was an overhang that I could hide really, really well with. And I hid underneath there. I put my head in the sand. I counted the 10, tried not to move like how I did the previous uh, dives, but never looking in their direction. And when I put my head up really slow, he was looking at me. And I was like, oh, mother truck, are you done? And so I extended <laughs> my gun out and I shot him. And I went in and I was, I mean, jumping up and down. Like in the water, I was giving my best Tiger Woods fist pumps. I mean. I was so pumped, but you know, it was just a culmination of how much time it took to get this fish, how long it took to get this fish. I mean, and just kind of outsmarting the fish, uh, which really, really makes it memorable. Um, and I've shot bigger fish than he in. I've shot, uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to travel to some pretty cool parts of the world and shot some big tuna, like in Panama I shot, you know, uh, my biggest tuna down in Panama is 196 pounds. Um, Damn. You know, I've gotten to chase some really big marlin. Unfortunately, I never landed one. Um, but, you know, I've dove really deep in Greece at the World Championships a few years ago. I speared a fish at 192 feet um, on a breath of air at the World Championships. And that was probably my, that is my deepest fish I ever speared. Um, you know, so I've got like, you know, thankfully I've been blessed to be able to, to explore and see parts of the world and uh, spear some fish. But the one that sticks out most to me is this little humbling fish that took me forever to shoot. But uh, now that I shot him, I mean, it, I have a fish print of him. Unfortunately, I'm in between homes right now. We're building a new home. So the painting is in, um, in storage. But uh, I had a what's called Gyutaku. And we're an artist mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. and prints it. And so I have a Gyutaku print of that fish. And uh, I'll have like my, my Axis deer and the elk that I've shot and stuff like that. And then I'll have my, my Moo up here. They'll be like, how does that take Supreme? I was like, bro, that's the one. That's the nice. one. That's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the crazy thing, my wife, has, my wife doesn't even know how to swim. <laughs> and so like she, I bring home fish. And she's like, what's for dinner? I was like, oh, moo. She's like, oh, thanks. I was like, do you know what it took to get this moo to dinner tonight? <laughs> do you know what I had to do? Do you, know, do you know what I had to do? Do you know the people that I had to kill to get to this? <laughs> you know, but, Lisa, uh, you, you get a good thank you. My wife's a, she's a pescatarian and, and mainly just eats vegetables. So when I bring home wild game, she's just like, you know, just put it in the freezer. Like, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> see you gotta pick up spearfishing man should be all of yeah them. i'm i'm uh, i'm working my way into it slowly 
Especially <laughs> in the Keys, man. You got some really good spearfishing out there. The Wahoo run yeah, that comes yeah. through in January is really, really good. And the mutton snappers and the yellowtail snappers out there, you got some really good eating fish. I mean, I was telling these guys, I saw three three hogfish out at our uh, one of our local beaches the other night, uh, or other day, I guess. And, but I didn't have my spear with me, and I think I was within 100 yards, so uh-huh. that wouldn't have gone over well. Hey, but, it's COVID-19 year, man. There ain't no rules. <laughs> You're collecting food <laughs> for your family. You cut cut that in half, and then we'll be good, right? Fifty yards—that's the minimum. All right, sounds good. You're like, well, I just shot it over out there somewhere. If you want to measure, go measure. Exactly. Yeah. I actually, I stay more than six feet away. I had my rangefinder on. I ranged it. It was 101 yards, right to where I shot it. Where? <laughs> so, how do you train? Because uh, I know you you're a free diver mm-hmm. for the most part. Uh, whenever you spearfish, so what's what's your training regime, both on land in the water? What what helps you stay tip top? Um, the the cool thing about Hawaii is that we do have two fourteen thousand foot mountains, um, and so we have a lot of elevation. So you, you know the best thing that you can do is cardio, of course, in um, uh, what's that in high elevation stuff. Um, and mm-hmm. we've got a some family land uh, that we do a reforestation project on the south side of the island. That is at about 6,000 feet of elevation. Um, and so just walking around with that, putting backpacks on, helping me out, um, you know. But there's for spearfishing, there's no better training than just getting in the water. And luckily for us that, you know, the water, you know, if the water on my side of the island um, isn't favorable for spearfishing, I can drive two hours to the other side and go spearfishing out there. Um, and the good thing is, you know, you just tell the wife, let's go to the beach, you know? And so you go to, the, <laughs> you know, you, you bring a picnic blanket and you bring some, some cold beverages and some, some Colin's grapes. taking notes. Yeah. I have actually <laughs> <laughs> grapes for the kids. And, um, you know, you go in the ocean for a couple hours and you just kind of push yourself. Um, you know, so the spearfishing side of it, that's, you know, unless I'm not able to get in the water, uh, walking around, um, up at our property and just kind of, not doing heavy weights, but because I'm a kind of a bigger dude, you know, 5'11", 230. So, um, you know, I, the worst thing that I could do for myself for the spearfishing side is get super, super muscular. You know, and that's that's why I don't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't want to hurt my spearfishing. You know, <laughs> I don't want to. No. If I look like the rock, bro, I'm just going to sink to the bottom. I can't be doing that. <laughs> you know, so... Uh, um, you know, just, just trying to, to eat right, not eat too many carbs. Um, there's a, a guy named Peter Atia. He's a doctor out in um, California, and I took him archery hunting. And uh, he's a brilliantly smart man, um, and he's got a great podcast. His name is, I think it's uh, The Fast, uh, I don't know what the podcast is, Dr. Peter Atia. But a really, really brilliant guy, and he contacted me earlier last year, um, or the ending of last year. And he's like, hey, uh, have you ever thought about fasting before you free dive? And I was like, I, not really. I was like, I like to eat. And I was like, not, not too much fasting going on. <laughs> and he's all like, well, there's some really cool um, correlations and positive, um, uh, positive tracks that they've shown that fasting will actually help you hold your breath. Um, he says, I know you got the world championships in Italy coming up um, in the fall of next year. And you said it's going to be deep. Would you like to try and work out a... Um, a uh, 
an experiment with me? And I was like, yeah, for sure. And so we started to test out how fasting and how it correlated with being able to hold my breath and uh, being able to have my heart um, uh, recover as I was spearfishing. And the showings as of right now are unbelievable. Um, you know, being able to, to, to do 16 hour fasts before I go diving. Like, so my heart rate, as I'm on the surface, my resting heart rate is usually right in like the mid sixties. Um, and then as I dive down, uh, you got your mammalian dive reflex and your whole body just starts to slow down. Your heart starts to slow down just automatically. And my heart will actually, I mean, as, as uh, accurate as my, my garment can be, it'll show that my heart rate will go down into like the, the high thirties to the mid thirties. And then as I come back up, of course I start to kick. So it goes back up into the sixties. And as soon as I hit the, the surface and I take that first breath, there's a huge spike and it goes from sixties up to like, you know, the low one hundreds and the, your ability to bring your heart rate back down to your resting heart rate. So you can start to recover quicker and you can do another dive, especially for competitive spearfishing is huge. Um, and so what I was seeing is like with my watch is if I did eat something before I dove, it would spike, but it would take a long time to get back down to where I could to go dive again, where if I didn't have any food in my system, it would spike and it would get back down to 60 relatively quickly. And I think it's because they didn't have to divvy up your oxygen to your digestive system. It didn't have to do, um, you know, everything that, you know, as you're, as you're, you know, trying to digest your food is just absorbing oxygen and using energy. And uh, so I went from my heart rate going um, or taking four or five minutes to get back down to 60 after I come up uh, from a dive to two minutes where my body has come back to its resting state and ready to dive again. Um, after being on the bottom for two and a half minutes, uh, the last dive that I did with my watch was, I think we did it, we were diving between like 110 and 130. And, um, you know, my heart rate showing that it, came back and recovered that much quicker was huge. And then eating a ketogenic diet was, was really, really big. And, um, and it was going really well until COVID-19 happened. And now <laughs> I, home, I eat cookies with my daughter now and we make freaking pancakes like every other breakfast because that's what she wants to eat. And I'm like, Doc, yeah, sorry. Thanks Corona. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, so, Corona. I, I have two questions uh, based on the fasting. I'm really curious. I've been doing uh, a lot of thought and a little bit of research on sort of fasting before working out. And I've heard a lot of the theories and stuff, but I'm curious. So um, like 16 hours or so of fasting before you're diving, are you feeling a loss of energy while you're diving? I, I haven't. In comparison it. to if you eat? I haven't had it too much. Um, like, uh, so the 16 hour fast before I dive isn't even that big of a thing. It just means that I stop eating at eight o'clock the night before and then uh, I'll mm -hmm. dive at like noon the next day or, um, you know, so it's, it's not that big. It's just that I'm going to skip breakfast um, where a lot of times like, and starting and staying away from that heavy carbs, you know, like I swam in college. And so, you know, it was eating spaghetti the night before so that you could carb load up for your race. And I remember carb loading yeah. up thinking how can this be good my race is two lengths i'm a sprint freestyle it's like i go down and back like why do i need the carb up that's not gonna that i can see the distance guy having the carb <laughs> up but 
you know, for me, it made it make sense. But, um, you know, I, with spearfishing, everything is so slow. Um, you know, you don't, you don't do anything fast. You know, it's not like um, doing CrossFit where you have to do, jump up and do a, a hundred sit-ups as fast as you can. Spearfishing is the exact opposite. You want to slow down. You want to work on your heart being really slow. You want to, so it's already at a slower pace. So as far as like working out and fasting, I, I don't know how that would work out. Um, but with spearfishing, because it's so anti-working out, you're just going real slow. You're doing long, slow kicks. You're doing really deep breath holds. And you're trying to stay as still as possible and use as little energy as possible. Um, I That's where the fasting really helps the breath hold guy out. As far as working out, I, I don't know. I don't, like, I don't think it'd be a good idea to fast the night before fast <laughs> the morning and then go chase an elk up the top of the Rockies. Um, but then again, I don't know, maybe that would be a great idea because then you're two pounds lighter from not having to, to eat the dinner from the night before. Um, but I think, I think, you know, as far as the end output is, as long as you're in shape before you start to do anything, um, you know, I think if you're, out of shape and then you stop eating and then you try to do something you would be in a world of hurt i think everything has to be gradual into whatever you want to do yeah not just jumping right into it yeah so if someone was interested in uh, beginning spearfishing say there's three people that you might be talking to now <laughs> that might be interested or even more that are listening what uh what hot tips do you have for us for for getting into it find a group of friends and do it that's the biggest thing because make it fun. Um, you know, just like just like when you're, you're little and your dad's taking you into the woods or taking you into the ocean, you got to make it fun. You know, it's not – if you guys all three go out there and you guys have a horrible time because you guys are just taking it so seriously, you guys aren't going to want to do it again. You know, and the only way that you're going to get better at anything is to do it multiple times more and more and more. Um, you know, and, and hopefully on the first or second time you guys get dog luck and uh, you shoot a big hog fish, <laughs> or you shoot something that just drives you even more. And then the competitiveness gets out of you and your buddies. But that's the biggest thing is, is get a group of friends to go with you, get into it all together, have fun with it together. Um, and then if you can, you know, there's always people out there that are willing to take new guys out. Um, as long as you're not a douchebag new guy. You know, you're not, the, you know, like in the fire department, it was the yeah, but guy. don't be the yeah, but guy, you know, um, listen to whatever they have to say and, and try and put forward what they can do for you. You know, don't be like, yeah, but I don't want to do that. I want to do this. Yeah. But this guy told me I should do this. Yeah. I read in this book, we should do that. You know, there's, there's a didactic side of it. And then there's the book side of it, right. <laughs> you know, I'm sure in all of your guys' professions now, I mean, you read it one way in your book and then you do it somewhere else on the online um, just because uh, you know, the book can say one thing, but in real life situations are two totally different things. Um, you know, but that's, that's the biggest thing is, is getting it with friends that, that you enjoy being around and that you're going to have some fun and there's some competitiveness with you, but also have, you know, an, as much competitive as it is, you're going to have somebody that's going to be a cheerleader for you when you bring in a fish as well. Um, but do it safe, do it fun, and uh, when you can, try and bring in uh, somebody that's done it for a little while longer than you, that can kind of show you um, the ropes. But honestly, the best way to do it is baby steps. Like, 
start with a pole spear and work your way up. That's good. I think that's that's some solid advice. Um, Colin, Dustin, I don't think I like you enough to go spear fishing with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, some of my friends won't even take me Dustin. on their boat. Yeah. I have a friend who has a boat that won't take us out. <laughs> I, Who's that? Are you guys talking about me? I'm trying to sell that boat. So. <laughs> I heard that he's. I heard that he finds hogfish. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think they were a little under the limit, maybe. <laughs> That's when you just stretch them <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so you're a bowman. Have you ever tried a like one of those sea slings? Um, I never tried the sea sling. I tried the. I went to the Bahamas um, a number of years ago, and uh, they're all primitive. Um, and so I used the, um, uh, what is that? The Hawaiian sling and the pole spear while I was there, but that that sea sniper, sea sning, or whatever that thing is that looks like a bow and arrow, like an old Oneida or whatever they are, that looks pretty cool. It definitely, definitely looks pretty cool. But no, I've never tried it. I can't find it in stock anywhere. I really want to try it out. There you go. That's that's the best way. Just, just go jump in the Coast Guard's pool and shoot them as they swim by. You'll be good to go. <laughs> <laughs> the Air Force guy in the, in the Coast Guard's pool, that's the way to do it. Yeah. All <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> So, what's your uh, what's your top fish to eat? Top fish recipe. Um, growing up here in Hawaii, we eat everything. So, um, and <laughs> eat everything raw. But uh, when it comes to sashimi, um, which is just to me just the pure flavor of the fish, I love wahoo, and uh, we call it ono out here. And uh, it's just that white, steaky, so good. Um, you know, and uh, of course, poke and everything like that with tuna. And then uh, a fish off the reef that I really, there's two that jump to the top of my uh, my taste buds as far as favorites go. And it's a little kole. Uh, my buddy Ryan Myers put one out called Eating Aquarium Fish with Justin. And he did a YouTube video. Oh, yeah. I just watched that. Uh, I watched that video yesterday, as a matter of fact. <laughs> it's really classic. And we're spearing fish like the size of our palm because... That's what they are. They're they're tangs. They're little surgeon fish, yellow eye tangs, and they're just delicious. I mean, you fry them up, and you you know now if you fry them up and you have a cold beer in your hand and uh, you dip them in with a little soy sauce and chili pepper water, and it's just it's so good. It's crispy and just really really good. And then there's another one called a a kumu out here that um, we steam uh, just with salt and pepper, and we steam it with a little bit of lemon. And uh, the flavors that come out of it are just, it's so good. It's just a pure white fish that is just soft and flaky. But those two local fish out here are just, I mean, unbelievable. But then, I've, you know, in Australia, I've had tusk fish and, and purple cod and finger mark that was ridiculously good. And then in Greece, we shot this, one of the groupers I shot, we took it to a restaurant and they simply just grilled it. They didn't even scale it. They gutted it. They just grilled it with salt and then brought it to the table. And they gave you olive oil and salt. And that was, I mean, it was so good that way as well. And I don't know if it's because it's just the arena that you're eating it in um, or the room that you're eating it in. But, you know, when I'm home, a fried cola and a cold beer, can't get any better than that. Just comfort. Comfort yeah. food. Comfort food. Hey, how do you how do you say the state fish name? 
Humu humu nuku nuku apua. <laughs> Your turn. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta have to take a mulligan. <laughs> they are the dumbest fish in the world too. Like I'll take people out spearfishing, and I'd be like, bro, anything out here is edible unless unless it looks like it deserves to be in a in a uh, aquarium. Try not to shoot it. So the big yellow ones don't shoot that, but anything else. And people will come up to me with this and like, can I eat this? It's like, yeah, you just broke the state law, bro. Like, what do you mean? It's like that's the state fish. So like, no, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so go let it go. Like I speared it. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> let it go. <laughs> um, I had a question and it just slipped in my mind. Oh, Panama. So, yeah. uh, you're. Uh, hunting tuna in Panama. What uh, what part of Panama were you at? So we were th- we fly into Panama City, and then we take a small plane down to David, and then we mm-hmm. take a, a boat ride, and we're going to the Pacific side. Um, okay. And uh, trying to think of the place that we stayed at is a Chicoria Bay. Chico- I'm, I'm horrible at Spanish. Don't even. I'm out I, there. I can't pronounce it, but I know where you're talking about. <laughs> and um, but we're, the cool thing is we're chasing porpoises, and so the porpoises are chasing the adult, the tuna that are chasing the bait fish. And so you go out there, and I mean it's acres and acres of tuna of dolphins just. So you're sitting on the back of the boat, like full on, like you're gonna storm the beaches of Normandy, and you're just like this. And he's like, hey, bring it up. And, like, oh, 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 oh. and then he says, the captain was slow. He's all like, I'm marking the fish at 70 feet. Get ready. And you're like, go. And as soon as he puts it in neutral, one guy is throwing your float over and you're straight from <gasps> diving in the bottom, getting down, looking at your watch, getting to 60 feet, and then stopping and slowly sinking to 70 feet, waiting for the tuna to come by. And then all of a sudden you see the waves of tuna just to slowly start to appear out of the the gorillas out of the mist and you're like, oh, and you slowly shoot one. And, but then, you know, that's on a good dive. And the previous 10 drops, you did that getting beat up in the back of the boat. Didn't see a damn thing. Get back up. <laughs> they move. They turn left. We got to go that way. And we're chasing them all over the place. Um, but it's, it's such a rush and you get some really, really, really big fish. Um, in one trip, we went down there with uh, a handful of really good friends of mine. Um, I got like one, one, one ninety six. A buddy of mine's got a two twenty eight. Another friend got a two twenty three. I mean, we got some really big fish. Um, and the the coolest thing is, we came back to um, the place we're staying at, and uh, there's all these workers, and a lot of them will um, are used to eating reef fish that are around the islands and such. But to have you know a slab of tuna or something like that is a big occasion. And we come back, you know, and we've got you know, 150 pounds of fish and we can only eat so much. And we, we started smoking it actually while we were there. Um, but you know, you give away some of the workers that are there, you know, seven or eight pounds of tuna and they're, they're your best friends. You know, you give them fish and they're like, ah, tuna. And then of course the next day, you know, you're, you're getting some snack that their wife made at home of some corn meal oh, wow. and, yeah. and stuff like that. And it's just, it's really, really cool. But yeah, Panama is a pretty rad place. Like, uh, pretty crazy the the big fish that are swimming around that that section of the ocean. It's uh it's impressive the connection of food and the availability to open up doors and um, 
you know connect with people and and something as you know as simple as that it's i i think that's a great experience that's one of my favorite parts of traveling yeah it it truly is and and the cool thing about you know the traveling that that i've gotten to done gotten to do a lot of it is around spearfishing and archery hunting and uh they're there, I mean, you don't get anybody happier than when you give them fresh fish or you give them, you know, some fresh meat and stuff like that. And they're instant friends. And then the next time they see them, you know, they, they're showing that gratitude by, you know, it just be a big hug. Well, not COVID-19. It'll be a, hey, from a distance. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, big hugs or, you know, they, wanna, they want you to taste the way that they made it. And, um, you know, when I was in New Zealand, a couple of years ago, I shot some big kingfish and I gave uh, one of the guys, um, one of the kingfish I shot and he brought it back and he's all like, we've been smoking fish like this for years. And he brought me back some, some, some of the smoked kingfish that I shot. And I mean, it was to die for. I mean, it was so good. And I asked him, I was all like, can you, can you make more of this? He's all like, yeah, if you can bring more kingfish. And so I gave him a bunch of kingfish, paid him some money to smoke it for me. And I brought back, like, I mean, I left all of my clothes there. I brought back like, close to 60 pounds of smoked kingfish. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and I love it. It's a good haul. And, uh, yeah, it was so good. It was so good. And, and like, you know, it's those relationships that you get by just, you know, giving back to the fish that you speared in their waters. I mean, it's, it's I think it's just that everybody's got to do, you know? That's what, that's what I was going to ask you is, is kind of a, a traveled um, spear fisherman and, and hunter, like, what do you what do you see people most or what do you do most that kind of positively represents our culture as like the outdoorsmen as the people who who want to travel who want to but also like do it do so in a respected way that that you're not just like hey i'm gonna come in and shoot all your animals and Mm -hmm. you know eat all your fish and then i'm gonna get on the plane and leave i think you know growing up here in hawaii it gives you a good representation of how you should be because there's so many people that come here and show you how you shouldn't be, you know, here in Hawaii, you're on an Island. So you've got to be sustainable. And there's so many people out here that they just want to come here and just shoot whatever they want and, and kind of just disregard the local people. Um, and so, you know, the, the great thing about traveling and getting to see places is, is really getting along and meeting the people and hanging out with the people and, and, you know, asking them, you know, and, and trying not to be a douche and just kind of to listen to what they're saying and, and go along with the flow. You know, there's a, there's a lot to be said about sitting at a dinner table with someone that you just met, you know, whether it's something that you caught or wherever you're at and eating the food that they prepare in front of you and not spitting it back out or be like, no, nah, that's okay. I'm not going to try that. It's sitting there and, and breaking bread with them and really understanding what, uh, what goes into that meal that they're, they're prepared for you. And in the, the same, re- the same regard, you know, treating their resource, whether it's their ocean or their forest with that same respect, um, you know, that, that you want your forest to be respected with or your oceans to be respected with. And, and not, you know, like I take people out here spearfishing all the time and I tell them, I was like, and you get five fish. Like, what do you mean you get five fish? I was like, when you jump in the water, you get five fish. So don't, don't go crazy out here. As I like, you know, be selective. And, uh, you know, and it's just that self, um, you know, governing out here that, you know, really is, has kind of rooted into to who I am and who I want to represent myself to be. And, you know, because 
there's a lot of the places that, you know, you go to that, you know, you might be the first person from Hawaii they've ever met or a handful of people from America that they've ever met. And, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm a proud Hawaiian and I'm a proud American and I want to, you know, that's why I really like competitive spearfishing is because I get to represent the U S and I get to represent my hometown, but you know, competition, you know, is one thing, but a person is, is way bigger and way more of a value of uh, showing respect, I think, than, than a finish. And so, you know, having that respect and having that, um, you know, that, that mindset of, of going there and experiencing it and, and kind of, you know, I guess, you know, like I said, like when you come out to Hawaii, I mean, you get so many people that leave Hawaii. They're like, you know, those people from Hawaii are assholes. They're such dicks to us white people. Is I like, no, we're not. It's like, we're dicks to you if, if you feel entitled or if you come out here and you just take, 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 or um, you're not appreciative of our lifestyle, then yeah, we're going to set you in your place. Or we're going to tell you, hey, mother trucker, this is my home. If you're a visitor here, you better listen up. You know, and it's it's that same mentality that I reverse role that I take when I go traveling is that hey, I'm here to listen, I'm here to learn, I'm here to be a part of your culture, and uh, I'm here to have some fun, and let's go have some fun together. That's awesome. I I think you do a great job. Um, all you know the videos and the articles that that you've written um, for Harvesting Nature and the the photos and social media. I think you you do an outstanding job of of representing you know Hawaii, the U.S., the sports. Um, and it's it's really great to see. Thank you very much. Uh, well, yeah, man, we gotta we gotta have a good group representation for the guys like you guys that are freaking putting your lives on the line to to ensure that we get to live and and travel and do the things that we get to do. You know, if it wasn't for you guys out there, you know, putting your guys' lives on the line every single day, um, and you guys chose to do this, um, you know, it allows me to 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 go out and explore the world with a spear gun and a bow in hand. And uh, if it wasn't for the men and women in uniform like you guys three, you know, we wouldn't be able to do this. So hats off to you guys, man. Thanks, man. Yeah, thanks. So, well, I think uh, I think we're running out of time here. Oh. I, I, it's been a it's been really awesome having you on, and we've had a an, an amazing chat. Thank you, I guys, think for sure. Thank you very very much. Yeah, hope yeah. you guys come out to Hawaii sometime. Yeah, I think so. I. That sounds great. I uh, yeah, I have a awesome. I have a buddy that's getting stationed out there. He's gonna be flying C one thirties for the Coast Guard for the next uh, three years or so. So I'll probably probably schedule to have a trip out that way here pretty soon uh, once he gets settled. So yeah. hopefully we can uh, connect while I'm out there. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And you guys, you guys want to come out? Yeah, just, uh, just come say holler, come say hi, and we'll we'll get you on some fish, and maybe we'll get you guys on a few pigs and stuff if you guys are on the Big Island. Nice. Sounds good. Yeah, uh, good. Hey, uh, Colin, you you have anything? No. Um, actually, Justin, you took my question earlier about the comparison of archery to spearfishing, but um, <laughs> no, man, it, it was uh, it was a real pleasure talking to you, Justin. Real nice to meet you. Um, really enjoyed hearing uh, hearing your accounts and your experiences and everything like that. And uh, take care, and hope we get to talk again soon. Yeah. Thank you very much, Colin. Yeah, Dustin. Yeah, no, it was really good talking to you. Uh, surprised to find out about Axis Deer in uh, Hawaii. That was pretty interesting. Um, but you got my my interest uh, 
spiked right now, so I'm gonna be doing a lot of internet research now. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> awesome. We've got yeah, we've got access to your own three islands. We have it on Lanai, Maui, and Molokai. And uh, you know, um, Lanai is the only one that has a state hunt, and they have it every February. So if you guys are ever looking for a great, I mean, I think it's like fifty bucks to come and hunt um, on Lanai and stuff like that. But it's, I mean, and if you guys are interested, you just got to sign up. It's a lottery, but they give you it. If you're going to come archery, you have nine days. Um, if you're going to do black powder and rifle, then the, it kind of depends on how you're, you're drawn, whether it's the first or the last or first, fifth or ninth weekend or whatever it is. Um, but if you guys have any interest in it and you guys um, want to do it, yeah, just let me know. Um, but yeah, if you just Google access to your hunting on lanai that's that's the place to go there's also a lot of outfitters um and they're relatively inexpensive out here um compared to like i don't know what they are in texas or anything like that but uh you know like an elk hunt or a mule deer hunt you know it can be a few thousand dollars where you can get um especially on molokai or, or maui you can get uh meat hunts and and trophy access to your hunts for a few hundred bucks um because there's just so many of them. I mean, there's, I think on Maui, there's like 50,000 axis deer. On Lanai, there's like, there's like 4,000 people and there's like 30,000 deer. So, I mean, you know, it's like this last deer season for the archery hunters and for rifle, you got two does and one either sex tag. So you got three deer you could shoot in a weekend. And you had to be pretty hard fetched not to shoot them with your rifle and not to fill all your tags with a rifle archery of course it's still a challenge but some friends of mine are still getting some beautiful bucks and definitely filling their tags with a couple of does maybe i can ask you this really quickly uh do you tree stand blind or spot and stock when you should 99.9999 percent of my hunting is all spot and stock that's just it's just the beauty of it i just cool. really enjoy it like i can't sit still to save my life um I have, with that being said, I've shot one deer out of a tree stand. And if that deer didn't show up within the first 10 minutes of me being in the tree stand, there's no way that I can do. I mean, I get, like, if I if I see a deer sleeping in the open pasture and I know he's going to get up and walk to water off to my right, I can't sit that to the water and watch him sit out there for two hours. There's no way. I have to try and crawl in and try and shoot him in his bed. <laughs> you know? Ninety percent of the time, I'm going to scare him before I even get close. But uh, no, I can't sit still um, unless there's constant action. I can't. So a lot of the hunting is um, spot and stock. Um, but uh, with the axis deer on Lanai, there's so many trails and there's so many deer. And um, during the public season, there's a lot of hunters in there as well. So if you find a good trail and you just set up on a good trail, um, that first first light for the first hour you can get pretty lucky. And then after that, it's all games loose and just run around sprinting at everything. Sweet. Justin, do you have any, uh, any last words for the group or for the listeners? Uh, just thank you very much for bringing me on, man. I freaking, I loved it. It's been, it's been a long time, man, from harvesting nature back in the day before. Yeah. Got into the <laughs> um, it's good to finally get to, to hear your voice and, and see you guys. And, and thank you guys very much for all that you guys do. Um, and stoked to, to see this and stoked to hear more. And, and yeah, really, really glad to, to meet you guys. And, uh, and hopefully we get to do this again. Um, definitely learned a lot. This lesson had a lot of good stories about hunting, spearfishing, some tips and tricks. 
uh, that I think are very valuable to probably everybody listening. And um, if you continue to like our episodes, head over to social media, give us a follow, whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Uh, hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, tell us what we're doing wrong, tell us what we're doing right, and uh, everybody have a good night. Aloha, you guys. Through the Blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night, floats a duck camp alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. From the Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest, me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. I'm Will Cooper, host of Hunt Stand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already... Download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.